I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. 2020 has taught us many things, but for me, one of the most memorable is how much I personally need touch, how much I miss it when suddenly we're told we cannot touch. We can't kiss hello or goodbye. We can't hug. I miss the supportive arm on my shoulder, the squeeze of a hand. Whatever life throws at us, humans reassure with touch. But is it just me that misses this touch or is it universal? With me today is someone who's built much of a career studying our brains and what happens when we touch and when we are denied touch. Dr. Katerina Fotopoulou is a professor of psychodynamic neuroscience at University College London and part of the team who recently conducted the world's largest study of touch. Katerina, thank you so much for being a guest on The Parenthood. Thank you. How do we know touch is so important? I mean, it's obviously quite a difficult thing to measure, um, Mm -hmm. but how do we know it's so important? Well, we we don't always know based on intuition. I would argue that before COVID, most of us didn't think about touch the way we think about touch today. It is, after all, a silent modality. It doesn't crow out. It's something you do implicitly, automatically as a habit, particularly in intimate relationships, but also beyond, like You enter the professional meeting and a handshake is something that we never thought about how we do. Nobody knows how long you hold somebody's hand for, the same as a hug. We don't have a lot of reflections and rules and regulations about the the peculiarities of touch. Even our existing rules and regulations are, you know, whether you should or you shouldn't touch, quite generic. But of course, that's just us. That's intuition. Science for at least 100 years, has really focused on the advantages and the importance of touch for the development of the mind. And there is actually a wealth of evidence generated first in animals about the devastating effects of depriving animals from touch. So if you take um, a mammal, let's say um, a cat, and you deprive it from, um, you know, its natural um, habitat, so it it doesn't grow up with... um, other uh, cats uh, in the lab, let's say, right? So it's only humans or even an isolated environment. Then that animal, even though it may look all right on the outside, will grow up to be more sick, will have a more sensitive um, physiology and may even die sooner and will show greater uh, biological markers of what in humans would be stress. So you'll have a more stress animal and an animal that can withstand illness worse. So we know these things already from animals. We know it from monkeys. We know it from many of our uh, lab experiments. And in humans, I mean, I've read about the Romanian orphanages being really one of the most profound examples of when children are brought up with limited touch. That's right. What so obviously, that? 
you would never do the same with children, right? You wouldn't yeah. experiment, uh, deprive them from the natural environment. But things like these studies, so uh, children that were, were left for war circumstances or other um, sort of adoption studies, other naturalistic ways by which people may be deprived from human to human touch have taught us a lot in science, even though it's much more restrictive samples. And there are evidence there showing that you may have a brain so the brain has a normal process of maturation. It changes as people grow older and it does have some critical periods where there is more change and more development and then input from the world is more critical than in other periods. And if in these, for example, early childhood periods, um, a, a, a small kid is left alone, we see that the brain does not develop as it's supposed to develop. It doesn't connect as it's supposed to connect. And some of these effects may take years to change. Importantly, uh, and that we haven't done in human infants, but we can infer it from animal studies. If the, the, the how do you reverse that kind of early childhood damage, for example? So it seems that you need touch to do it. It's not enough to then throw somebody in a very supportive, let's say, economically environment or in a in a very verbal, kind and supportive environment. It still needs appropriate touch. So there's something unique about um, humans and uh, species close to humans, mammals, that um, touch is there to mediate. And, and even are... in, in situations where touch has been deprived, is that always then reassuring? Or if they haven't been exposed to touch, is that something that they'd shy away from? Oh, yeah, there's nothing automatic or quick. So touch is like anything else. We do need to learn a little bit. We need to anticipate it. And there's also huge individual differences. But before we go there, sort of speaking of general tendencies, there are a few things that can happen in human life, like COVID, that allow us insight into... Um, the mechanics of touch. One of them is an old study now where people studied mothers who, uh, which in, in that period during their pregnancy, they were um, unfortunately mostly abused by their partners and that left them depressed, as you can expect. So then the depression, as we know, in the mother has a chance of creating all sorts of vulnerabilities in infants, both at the physiological level and the psychological level. And what these researchers did is they had a sample of these um, women and they studied what were the factors that the women themselves, after they had their babies, um, were able to self-report that made a difference in the long-term development and healthy development of kids. And it, it wasn't how they handled the depression itself. It was to what extent they had good, um, uh, healthy, um, intense, tactile interactions with the infant. So the more appropriate touch there was, the more these infants were not influenced by the effects of the perinatal depression. So this is a good indication of how touch can both be, you know, if it's not there, can have devastating effects, but also in the long term, it can heal. Yeah. And how important, I mean, with babies, you know, babies born in usually a, a place directly on the mother's chest. And, mm. you know, the more we understand about, you know, uh, babies and bonding, uh, the more I, I, I hear that 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 
is really, really important, that skin to skin. In fact, I did hear that there is some research to show that the mother's chest temperature will adjust according to the temperature of the baby. So if the baby needs warming up, that chest area will be a few degrees warmer. And if the baby needs cooling down, that chest area will be a few degrees cooler. I mean, that is just extraordinary, isn't it? It is, it is. And it doesn't apply just to temperature. It also applies to heart rate. So there is what we psychologists call a broader physiological mirroring that takes place, literally a synchronization of of bodies, you know, between infant and mother. So in other terms, they are a system. As far as a human baby is concerned, the mother-infant relationship is a system. That means the baby doesn't have the capacity yet to regulate their, you know, metabolic needs, their temperature, all the basic things that keep us alive are not uh, yet fully functioning in a baby. So we, that's why, obviously, we're in the womb, where there's placenta and all these other things. But even in human development, when we come out, we're still unable to regulate a lot of things. And the way evolution has made sure that babies survive is by literally ensuring that there are systems that keep the tactile connection, the proximity between mother and baby, that they're literally touching so that the body of the mother as well as her mood and her psychological state, can regulate the body of the infant. So it's a very deep bond. We think of it in psychological terms, but its physiological origins are also very, very deep and very, very important. And I mean, there are obviously situations where the mother can't have skin to skin with the baby just after mm-hmm. it's born. And I know that a lot of fathers will have skin to skin with the baby. Is that mm-hmm. as beneficial as with the mother or is that bond? Just yeah, absolutely. There? There's no evidence to suggest that it's got to be a particular person. So long as that person and persons, they have some stability, you know. And, you know, it takes a village kind of saying is because in the old days it did take a village. So um, it's the so-called grandparenting. Like evolution has also made sure that mothers have a lot of social support and they can provide this regulation to the infants, not just by themselves, but also via other bodies, as it were. The important thing is that there is caring faction, right? So the caregiving that... Uh, parents give to infants is sometimes much more uh, character building than they think it is or experience building than they think it is. Yeah. And obviously some babies, when they're born, they need to go into special care or into intensive care and into an incubator where touch is then a little bit more limited. Does Mm. this seem to have a long-term impact on the development of the baby? So this has been a... Yeah, this has been a very controversial area because, as you say, for medical reasons, for example, hygiene, it was considered important to to make sure that these infants survive to keep them as isolated as possible. And then there was a big initiative, particularly in Canada, uh, by somebody called Field and colleagues to um, do skin-to-skin or kangaroo care uh, earlier on. And that was met with quite a lot of opposition and there's still some lingering debate because science takes a long time to happen. But In most, uh, at least Western countries, there is now an implementation, even in these circumstances, of touch. So you would have seen these little incubators with holes where the mother or the father can put their hands in and still achieve some tactile presence. I mean, I'm inclined to believe that our evolution has demanded that we have touch in early infancy as soon as possible. Now, that does not mean at the individual level that any traumatic or medical or other circumstances will 
generate permanent damage to a particular infant. I don't want people getting too scared. You can have a lovely life even if you had all sorts of periods where you were um, deprived of touch. But on average, touch is terribly important for our development. So if you can provide it uh, and it's all well, then do. I know. I often speak to women who have are in that situation and they feel so sad and anxious that they're not able mm. to do the amount of touch they were hoping to. And one thing I always say is that, you know, the first really two years of your child's life, they are going to be, you know, when they're out of hospital, you're going to have so much opportunity to touch them and engage with them. You know, the whole feeding process, which happens many, many times a day, every single day, the fact that they do sort of cling to you, it, it you have such an opportunity to kind of give them touch. And, and also, I think, be properly engaged with them when you're feeding them when you're touching them you know mm-hmm. don't have any distraction don't be looking at your phone with your other eye just properly engage with them and that will be so beneficial for them in terms of their development yes i'm, I'm even more uh, relaxed about you from the point of view of science so even if you are looking at your phone one out of three times i think we're underestimating the power of the body So it's not just where my reflective mind is focusing upon. I also have automatic and conscious part of the mind and the same about my embodied regulation. So it is, I would argue, sort of, you know, for example, think of breastfeeding. You get into a rhythm, if you're lucky, with your baby. And then that rhythm is established. It's a bit like driving a car. Now, if you were if you were doing something irresponsible when you're learning to drive a car, it's much more dangerous than you know thinking of you know grocery list after you've been driving for 10 years nobody will worry about the latter but people will worry if you're not concentrated when you're busy learning the basics and I think the same applies for um, infant caregiver interactions and we shouldn't forget it's not all down to the mother or the parent it's the infant also will have their preferences every infant is different um you know, touch is important, but there's no reason in starting with a sort of trying to be, if you like, perfectionists about um, about touch. But the important um, thing to remember is the systemic element. So an, an infant will have fundamental needs. And we all have been brought up by parents and by a nature that uh, will make us consciously and unconsciously react to these fundamental needs. So we'll all have our style here and we will transmit some of this style to our infant. So it is worth people having a thought about how do I react when my baby cries? Do I get upset? Do I get sad? Why? What's happening? Do I get worried? Do I try to interpret what they want? You know, and ask these kinds of questions, not in a critical way, but in an exploratory way, in a trial and error kind of way. This is what builds healthy minds, not some perfect, um, you know, prescribed view. This is what science suggests. And I totally agree with you. You you as a parent will have tons of opportunities to get it right. Yes, there are critical periods. Yes, there can be traumas and all, all sorts of other bad interactions happening. But if we're talking about sort of differences from some ideal, um, you know, evolution is there very, very clever. It has given us the opportunity of different phases in development for brain reorganization. A bigger one that parents sometimes don't realize is like the big second chance is adolescence. 
So those parents and society finds adolescence difficult because they want to be independent and they don't want to be touched and they don't want to be hugged and they don't want to listen to us and they want to be different and they want to take risks and all these things. But this is for us a huge opportunity. It's not so much an opportunity to build the foundations as you do with touch, but it's an opportunity to allow that person to feel the security of leaving the foundations, of actually building a self that is independent without us worrying about all the bad things that will happen to us, to them. You know, bad things happen, but good things happen too. If we trust our adolescents, they will feel that. And depending on the family we are, we can communicate this with touch or we can communicate that with other ways. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So do children, do they tend to need less touch as they get older? Uh, I would say, I mean, I don't know that we have very good evidence about this, but definitely we do have evidence that there's a lot of individual difference as, as much as there is cultural difference. So on average, kids in the different ages will tend to require the touch that they have seen in their own culture to correspond to different ways of being. So um, if a child is, is, is for any reason a particularly anxious child, then the kind of tactile reassurance they will require will have to do with the models of that that they see. So somebody that they perceive as very secure uh, emotionally, they will try to be like them, you know, and they might emulate some of these behaviours. So it, it's a kind of, again, a complex interaction between individual differences and culture. I see that definitely with my children. My daughter, who's the younger one, who's eight now, nine, something like that. She She's very, very tactile, needs to be... T- and she's tall now. So sometimes I'm like, oh, you're too big to be sitting on me. And my son, who's a year older, is just naturally one of those children that doesn't mm-hmm. need too much hugging. And I suppose as a parent, you've just got to judge that and not foist too much, you know, being tactile onto someone who does want to take a step back, but then presumably indulge the child that does want to sit on your lap. I mean... Is it is it ever you know do you do you ever say listen enough touching now you you can't sit on my lap or actually is that something within the family dynamic is really always great to indulge? No, I I, I personally also with my son, but also beyond that, I would never say that there is a rigid line. I think there's I mean if we have to come up with a, sim, a simple formula, I would say be mindful of the child's need. Does this need express something more than just a hug? Uh, can you have a chat about this in a neutral way? Be mindful of your own need. I mean, if I'm very busy, 
then I'm very busy for the same, you know, it doesn't matter if it's touch or it's something else. Um, if I have been busy forever, then maybe I shouldn't be busy. There are other kind of about you, internal and external um, considerations. And lastly, it is about the dynamic. So again, if I have been very absent, maybe a touch is a way to invite me back. If I have been very overburdening, maybe it is an attempt to differentiate. So if you are mindful of all these things and you still don't always know what to do, I think that's fine. That's as, as good as we all get. Um, the risk is only if there is a fundamental negative dynamic and nobody's willing to think and talk through it. I see. And obviously, outside, there's sort of touch within the family dynamic, which is very natural. But, you know, I also love seeing my children have tactile relationships with people outside that family dynamic. And that's, you know, during the pandemic, that's something that they've lost. We've still managed to cohabit together as a family. And if anything, mm. our touch has got more intense because there's more opportunity. But how important is touch outside that family unit? Is it that if they're getting hugs from someone, that's fine? Do you think we're going to emerge from this pandemic as a less tactile society outside the immediate family? But again, I'm sorry, but the brief answer is nobody knows. We might emerge as a less or as a more tactile society, which is interesting. Uh, we do know a few things. People are much more verbal about this. The kind of questions you just ask, in my experience, a lot of people in our research are, are coming and asking, you know, and in our questionnaires, they're able to answer them better, whereas before they haven't thought about it, which also suggests, and people indeed self-report, that they hadn't realised how important touches in relationships like friendships or even work, as I say, professional kind of touch. It seems that the intimate kind of touch for those lucky ones, as you say, that have it in the home still, despite COVID, is great. And it makes a difference in, in people that are living alone and they're finding it particularly difficult. But it's not sufficient. So um, what is it about touch and friendships? Uh, we, we know a little bit, so for example, we have studied in the lab that if you have a friend and let's say you're interacting in social media, if there is a way in the platform that you're using for tactile feedback instead of the usual emoticons we get in real social media, so if somebody can give you a digitally mediated caress or a hug, um, the experience of social support you get is greater. So there's something about, we also know from museum studies and shops and advertising, that if you can touch a product, it then feels more real, more tangible, more manageable, more familiar. So there is all these things uh, that we know from humans. But we also know, again, going back to more basic animal research, where we can find out more, is that it seems that touch, the origins of touch, social touch, is in allo-grooming, as it calls. So that is animals who clean each other and scrub each other and touch each other. So it all started for functional reasons with animals too, but in very quickly in animals that are closer to humans. Um, it becomes a socially structuring experience so that societies of animals are organised on the basis of these grooming practices. For example, the people that I groom they become my friends as far as resources go. So if I find food in the forest, for example, I will share it with the people I exchange grooming, tactile experiences, and I will not share it with the, my co-species um, that I don't share these tactile experiences. So if we extrapolate to the degree you can ever extrapolate from animals to humans, you can say that 
by, you know, the cheek-to-cheek kiss to our friends, the simple hug we do. These are habits we have of demarcating both what feels real and intimate and familiar to us, but also the the sort of a, a, a mental marker that these are our support network. These are the network of our people. This is the network that defines what is my culture, what is my my zone of influence, all these social notions. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I sort of, this is going to sound so spoiled, but I've missed having a massage even. That mm-hmm. just that sort of tactile, and, and that presumably is what, part of why a massage is such, you know, a, a pleasurable thing to have because you are having, you know, just it's touch again. It's, it's, it's all That's it is. That's right. That's right. And you have another human being changing the system again right so it's an allowed adult way to allow body-to-body interaction and that kind of sharing the synchronicity that happens between people even adults is a fundamental way that we survive in this planet for for centuries so um without these tactile experiences we all have that feeling that we're missing something but the good news is both in parenting and more generally COVID, at least up until now, and with, you know, projection for another six months, in the grand scheme of our lives is actually a small period. So there will be effects. We're all feeling them. And for some people, they might have greater and more negative consequences than others. But uh, there's very little evidence and understanding that there'll be long lasting effects from this period. Well, interestingly, I read a, um, an article in which you were quoted, and I think it was you who was saying that even if you're watching television and you see mm. people hug and you see people be tactile on a screen, that you know releases positive feelings in the brain, or which hormones they are, I don't know. But actually, since COVID, you know, because we're told we're not allowed to hug, instead exactly. of thinking, oh, how lovely, we think, oh, no, you're not allowed to touch, you're not allowed yeah. to hug. You're, in a way, thinking both, right? On the yeah. one hand, you're activating the same brain systems that you activate when you're actually touching, because that's the beauty of the human mind is so developed um, hierarchically, our brain that has multiple ways of processing the same information. So touch is not only the touch we feel from the inside, but also the touch we feel from the outside. And typically the brain brings all that together and gives you that nice feeling of a good hug, you know. But as you say, exactly now our brain is doing a double job. It has to inhibit because it's against the rules and it can be dangerous and it creates uncertainty. But at the same time, it's the thing we most crave for. So we are, uh, without knowing it and without deserving it, really, putting our brains into conflict. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it's in a, you know, in any permanent or damaging way. Um, the, the brain is obviously much more resilient and the mind is much more resilient. And some of the substitutes we have, like, you know, social media interactions, telephone interactions, WhatsApp, Skype, Zoom, what have you, can be exhausting because they are two-dimensional and also they're not real. The brain also has to inhibit, again, similar thing. It says, it is my friend, but it isn't my friend. So we're learning about this and that's exhausting. But at the same time, it does, we do get some of the interaction. We do get something out of it and we learn as a society the importance of what we're missing and how we can cope even with less. 
Well, there's nothing like understanding quite how much you love something until it's taken away from you. And maybe that's going to be the story of touch. Maybe when we are allowed to hug again, we are going to do it more because we we want to catch up and we realize what a joy it is just to hug someone hello, or even just that shit. I find it so awkward that, the, you know, hello and goodbye without that a little bit of brief physical contact. And that's partly because... Someone described it to me as a sort of miserable Morris dance of misery, I think she said. <laughs> and it's true because no one really knows whether you're meant to touch elbows or kiss yes. each other hello and then you're not meant to and you might offend someone. And Absolutely. Um, or oh, when somebody communicates really devastating news, it's so difficult not to be able to, to reach out. This is where touch serves us best and language fails. And or when somebody communicates good news and, you know, they want to celebrate and jump up and down with you and have a big hug and uh, pat in the shoulder. All this, I think, are um, it's something we've taken for granted. Um, my slight fear is, you know, and parents know that the best. We all panic when we get ill and, you know, we make grand plans about what we're going to do when we are not <laughs> ill anymore. So we'll have to see how much of this newly gained inside we will be able to maintain. Uh, once COVID is no longer such a big threat. But I certainly hope that our governments and our policymakers, because of these kind of observations that everybody sees, will be more amenable to the various voices that, for example, have fought for skin-to-skin touch in infancy, to the various voices that say that we need to balance our concerns about touch. For example, you cannot touch in psychotherapy because you might take a vulnerable, take advantage of a vulnerable adult. Balance that with what science has been saying is an advantage of touch and sometimes also a unique way in reaching somebody and sort of design systems, uh, including educational systems, that are not so punitive about tactile interactions. Well... Fingers crossed. That would be an amazing uh, positive outcome after what's been, I think, for many a really difficult year. Yes. Katerina, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to talk to you. I love I love it when parenting becomes a bit more simple. I love the fact that one of the most instinctive and natural things that we want to do is one of the most important things we can do for our children. Because I think very often there's so much pressure to get it absolutely right and be the best at it and think, well, should they be having violin and cello lessons <laughs> when actually giving them lots of cuddles and your attention when you can is is one of the most important things we can do so thank you thank you a real pleasure and thank you all for listening to this episode of the parenthood you can subscribe rate and review wherever you've downloaded this podcast you can also follow me i'm on instagram at marina.fogel but in the meantime thanks for listening and from katarina and me goodbye <laughs>